This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You might have just heard my little son, Wit. Yeah. He wanted to, to say hi. He's a big basketball fan. Yeah. Uh, he had a question for you. Hoop. Yeah, very he's, cool. He's got a little hoop. He wants to know, is there anything you can do to get James Harden to come back to the Brooklyn Nets? No, I don't see that happening. <laughs> so, Jordan, I was wondering... Um, Speaking of exercise, you know, I, I did you did you ever own a motorcycle? I, I actually owned a motorcycle, and I'm going to get to the to the, the exercise part of this. And you have to exercise your hands because when you shift gears, yeah, this feels um, like a real yeah. flex. You, you know, no, you, you, have, you can just you come ever, out. And say, we weren't speaking about exercise, and no. motorcycles aren't exercise. If no, you want to tell are, me with your hands, that you and own then if a you fall, you have to pick the motorcycle up. Okay. You lay everybody lays it down at some point or another, which is why ultimately I sold my motorcycle. Have you ever been on a motorcycle? Do you ever ride a motorcycle? Own I've, a motorcycle? No, no. I've I've yearned for a moped. That's the extent of my dalliances in the world of danger. Well, uh, when you're a swing dancer, which I guess you were up at uh, Kalamazoo, you know, uh, I guess you know swing dancing and motorcycling, they they shall never meet. You know. When I, where I come from in McKee's Rocks, which is a place that our guest knows about, if I took up swing dancing, they would throw me out of school, let alone teach me how to... Tell me about your swing dancing, okay. Jordan, for I, exercise, right? Gladly, I will tell you about it. And for anybody who is listening, the governor and I offline, it came up that I was swing dancing, and he, he is attempting to out me as a, a swing dancer in a way that I would feel some amount of shame for. I, I feel no shame. There was a... There was a beautiful three weeks uh, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, where everybody in the world, all the cool people in the world thought swing dancing was the thing to do. Wait, wait, so, wait. All the people in the world. All the people in the I world. I can guarantee you that our you guest fa- doesn't ever swing, it never went swing dancing and never I, thought it was cool. Maybe a I, couple people in Michigan thought <laughs> it was cool, but people, sw- I mean, this is not the 1920s, you know? There is... I'm trying to get funding for a documentary about the swing craze that took place, I think it was like <laughs> 2000, 2001. Uh, I, 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 would, I, I took swing lessons. I, did, I went to a special place in Kalamazoo to swing dance. I wore a fedora. And if you want to know if this was culturally relevant, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy performed at the Super Bowl that year. A lot of people don't know that. But when you talk about great Super Bowl performances, you talk about Beyonce, perhaps you talk about Dr. Dre, Prince... But there was a time in our culture where we said, let's give Big Bad Voodoo Daddy a stage. And I 
was a part of the culture at the time, still am. And so I look back at my fedora wearing era as a really a, a, a moment of pride for myself. Well, do you swing dance now? I mean, does your wife know you were a swing dancer when you asked her to get married? I asked her if she was a swinger. She said yes, and that has turned out terribly <laughs> since. Uh, you really have to ask a follow-up. Context is everything with those okay, types of questions. Okay, so I was talking to Max, our great producer, and he was telling me that he owned a, a Vespa scooter, an Italian motorbike. Maybe you should get one of those, uh, but you know, you may get a little exercise getting on and off. But I'm wondering about your your exercising. I mean, do you bicycle? Do you swim? Because, you know, Mark, our, we don't know each other that well. You know, only I see him on Zoom and that's it. Do you bicycle or swim or lift weights? Or do you do anything, Jordan, other than track people down and get them to say silly things? Well, first of all, tracking people down and having them say silly things is a workout unto itself. I have, it's a, it's a, I, I do, I run logical sprints day in and day out. I've, I've taken up uh, street ball or dad's playing basketball, however you want to contextualize it. And that has been primarily what I've been doing the last few months. And it's, it's a group of people in Brooklyn. I, I kid you not, the, it's a very low stakes basketball game. Can has, you touch the net when you jump really high? Of course I can. I'm about an inch or two away from touching the net. Literally my <laughs> game, my game involves, if you're like, oh, is it, is it a hardcore game? No, it involves like three other writers for late night television shows, two cartoonists for New, the New Yorker magazine, um, and usually a child who happens to be walking around when we need a sixth player there. And you so, pick on that, you, and you t you try to dominate the child, I'll bet, I, don't I have you? No shame dominating a child. It teaches them resilience, and they need to fight for things that are worthwhile. You know, we used to play basketball down in the house gym back in the old days when I was in the in the Congress, and it it got really rough. You know, because if you get athletes, or not athletes, but, well, you get politicians who think they're athletes, it gets really rough. And I'll never forget this guy, Jim Bates. He was from California. He came rushing at me to block my shot, and he headbutted me and split my forehead open. So I'm just dripping with blood, but I, can't, I know I got to get to the doctor and get stitched up. So I get on that little tram that goes from uh, one of the buildings to the Capitol so I could go get stitched up, and I'm sitting in there, and I'm not realizing... I'm just covered with my own blood. It's on my shirt. It's coming out, running down my face. And there are these tourists that are on that thing, too. And they're, like, whispering back and forth to one another about, who do you think's what do you think's going on with that guy? And that was my last basketball game uh, playing down there after I got headbutted by that jerk from California. I'm just imagining you blood coming out of your head and looking up at those tourists and being like, the filibuster, man, brutal. <laughs> Well, Quick anyway, question. we've got to excite guess. We, we have a very, I want to ask one question, though, because yes, I don't sir. know what the, I, I don't know <laughs> what the stereotype would be in, in the world, the world of Congress, better basketball player, Republican or Democrat? Uh, you know, we play a game. It was really unbelievable. The Republicans would play the Democrats and every once in a while we would win and every once in a while they would win. And I'm, I'm glad the Cubans on here because, you know, let me tell you, we had Tom McMillan on the Democratic side. And he was uh, six foot 11, maybe seven foot tall. He had a triple double in the NBA the year before, and he played for the Democrats. This, that's their definition of fairness. They get an all-American guy who is, a, who is you know, a, it, it does a triple in the NBA the year before, and he's their starting guy. Well, the announcer was Lefty Drizel, 
And you might recall he was a coach at the University of Maryland, and he coached McMillan. And he was the announcer and announced this game. And the only thing I can tell you is at the end of the game, we won. We won the game. The, the Republicans won the game. And I'll let you guess who the MVP of the game was. <laughs> I don't buy it. I, don't I would buy it not be second. telling this story if I were not the MVP <laughs> of that game. And you never know when you need a shooting guard. You know, you just oh, never know. I just imagine the pre-game ritual and post-game ritual for Republicans in Congress is probably watching Hoosiers four times. <laughs> That's exactly right. We won. What do you guys want to do? Do you want to watch Hoosiers again? Yeah, let's watch Hoosiers again. Great. Uh, let's get into our wonderful guest. Uh, we're, we're super excited. We could, I could spend an entire episode simply listing off all of the business ventures and accomplishments of our guest today. He's an entrepreneur owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He's a chairman. He's a shark. He's a father. He's a husband. But his his latest venture, the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, is an online pharmacy with the mission that every American should have access to safe, affordable medicines with transparent prices. The one and only Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks What's for coming up, guys? on. Thanks for having me on. And just to answer the questions in advance, yes, I swing dance. Oh, <laughs> you're not from Pittsburgh. No, yes, no, we no. no, come on now, because I learned to dance using folk dancing that I learned at the Czech Club in McKee's Rocks and oh, a okay. bunch of no, places. Okay, around. I'll give you a little. Okay, a little. Okay, okay. you were you at the Czech all, Club. Right, the Czech okay. Club, the Polish Club, the Union Squares, that all, if you were going to go, you had to do folk dancing. I used to go down pit, downtown Pittsburgh and these folk dancing groups. I mean, all that stuff. And did you, you were what, you were what, doing what did that you dancing? get from being yes. an exquisite swing dancer? Did you did you learn lifelong lessons that you utilize today? Let's just say it helped me quite a bit in college. And one of my favorite all time jobs was teaching sorority girls how to disco dance. See, I, I you know what? It, there's in the world times change, they evolve, but there is still something that is built into the idea of learning how to dance. It forces you to actually interact with someone else in a structured environment that perhaps aids the wallflower in learning to interact with people that you might eventually find an attraction like, like to. My parents both told me, rhythm will serve you well. <laughs> you know, okay, I'm going to, I've never been swing dancing. I would never admit it, whether I went to the Czech club or the Croatian club. I, I can't believe I'm hearing this out of a guy who grew up in, in Pittsburgh, but he grew up in a, he grew up in a rich area though. But I must tell you that there's a young lady named Daisy who's friends with my daughters. And I, I wanted to really make sure in weddings that I could perform. So she came and, and I learned to dance to, to Billie Jean. My, is, is there anybody that could listen to Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and not know how to dance? And I got to tell you, I'm going to send you the video. No, I'm not going to send don't. you the video. <laughs> Just trust me. It was really, really, really good. But I can't believe old, I can't believe Cuban grew up in Pittsburgh. Where you grow up? Mount Lebanon or something? I, I was born in Squirrel Hill. Then I moved to Scott Township, Birdland. Then I moved to Mount Lebanon. Oh, gee, no, that explains a lot. That's two sides <laughs> of Pittsburgh. The rich side and all of us hard oh, yeah, workers. The South Hills is just so rich, right? <laughs> now, as, as somebody who is not from Pittsburgh or even the East Coast, what, what, what is a general assumption someone should make of somebody who grew up in Pittsburgh? Just works hard, loves sports, good people. Okay, Governor, does that? Does well, I, that concur? I think it's. I think it's more than that. And I, and, and look, I think you like controversy. Okay. Well, where I come from in McKee's Rocks, 
if we didn't like your tie, we would tell you. If no we doubt. didn't like your shirt, yeah, we no would doubt. tell you. When I got over to Ohio State, to the Midwest, you couldn't act like that. But in Pittsburgh, you were direct. And that's what you are. And doesn't yeah. that come from, from your Pittsburgh roots? Without tell question. Tell it the lay it is. Mark, that's what your mother used to say. Tell it the way it is, right? No, a lot of truth to that. Yin's guys got it right. You know, um, the, you know, you you had to be direct. I'll tell you a quick story. My um, when I was sixteen in high school, um, I wanted to wear a T-shirt that said "bullshit" on it, and my mom was like, You're <laughs> "Now going we're to get... talking Pittsburgh." Okay. My mom was like, "You're going to get kicked out. I'm going to get the call. Just expect it." I'm like, "No, mom, come on. You know, we're we're more progressive, more advanced these days." I get to school with my bullshit T-shirt. <laughs> Bam! Right after my first class kicked out, you know, suspended a, a, a day of school, but, you know, to the governor's point, direct and to the point, you got to be. I will say I, I live in New York now and I do take offense when people are like, oh, New Yorkers are mean. New Yorkers are, are gruff. I'm like, New Yorkers are very direct. Uh, they will tell you what's going on. As qu- There's no time to waste. This town is too expensive. Everybody's here for a reason. Yep. You're paying in flesh. And so you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just tell you what you need. I'm not going to waste any time with BS. And I love the Midwest. I'm, I'm from there. It's in my soul. And I go back there and people are so kind. But you pay for that in years of your life spent making small talk. And at some point, <laughs> I go back to the Midwest and everybody's kind of like, isn't it nicer here? And I'm like, I love the Midwest. I totally do. But, but I, Pittsburgh I wasted has this unique bond. four hours. <laughs> Pittsburgh got a unique bond. That's a Pittsburgh accent. The governor and I are, are fortunate. We don't have a Pittsburgh accent. My mom was a yinzer through and through. My dad was not. So when you hear... We G-Jet going downtown, hang around the south side, wash your car, distillers. I mean, there is a unique aspect to a Pittsburgh language. And that is a unique bond that just being able to understand it just gives you a unique bond to, to other Pittsburghers. Did you call it a Yinzer accent? Yeah. yeah. You know how some places say you guys, some places will say y'all. In Pittsburgh, you say Yins guys. Or use guys. Use guys, yeah. Yeah, use guys, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, look, with all the stuff you've had, I, I've got the most important question. This is why I wanted you to be on here. I mean, all your you know, you know, know, entrepreneurship and the pharmacy, I, I don't care about any of that. What I really <laughs> want to know is, why don't you buy the Pittsburgh Pirates? I'm, I wait tried. a minute. Let me just know. I want you to go back at it. That, <laughs> I mean, it's a disgrace what's happening in that town with the Pirates. You know, what? why don't you go one more time and try to get them? Because they're, they ought to leave if they're not going to try. You know, I know why they're doing it and why they don't want to sell. It's like I tell everybody who asks. You know, if I could offer you a job where you made $20, 25000000 million a year, and all you had to do was stand in Market Square in Pittsburgh or in Point Park in Pittsburgh and let everybody yell at you for eight days, eight hours a day for six months a year, everybody would take that job. And that's the job of owning the Pittsburgh Pirates. They make so much money. I mean, I, I looked into it probably 2005 when my kids were young, and it, it seemed logical at the time. But now it's just not worth the time or the effort. Oh, what about what Roberto Clemente? Come on. <laughs> what are the calculations when you bring sports into it? As somebody who's obviously very business-minded, so much of sports is wrapped into the the emotions built around it, the history you have with it, and also what you get out of it, like with your relationship owning the Mavs, you know, when, when you, or, or when you step back and look at something like uh, Pittsburgh, do you put a financial number on what emotional toll and or gifts no, it will, it's will all, give you? No, it's 99% cent emotional, 1% finance. Um, because owning a team 
you only have so much control. So like we have a game tonight. It's a huge game for us for playoff positioning. My emotions already, you know, are already high. And the minute they toss the ball up to start the game, my stress levels go through the roof. And it's, you know, in business, I have some level of control. I know what I'm doing. I'm confident, right? I'm good at it. And it, with sports, you have no control. And, and so buying a team that plays 162 games, you know, when my kids were really young, it made a little bit of sense. Now it makes no sense whatsoever. I'd be dead. Let me just say that, you know, all the things you do, you just were born an entrepreneur, weren't you? I mean, it's just you grew up this way. It's like falling off a log for you, isn't it? Buying a sports team, starting yeah. a television network, you know, buying all these companies, having a pharmacy. It's like it's like it's just it was you were born with it. And your mother must have, God bless her. I know you just lost your mom. Yeah. She was such an influence, right? And did she encourage you this way? Yeah, both my parents did. Neither one of them had gone to college. Neither one of them really had a business background at all. Um, my mom was super young. She was 20 when I was born. So it was all new to them. And so just as long as my earliest memories, literally um, like nine and 10 years old of me buying and selling you know, baseball cards, literally, and doing special packaging deals at the bottom of Birdland in the park, um, where you, you know, one out of every 10 packs would have a Pittsburgh pirate in it. Uh, absolutely. Learning how, yeah. <laughs> learning how to market and do that stuff. And then selling garbage bags door to door, magazines door to door, you know, because I had, you know, my dad was always one of these people that said, if you want it, you got to go out and earn the money to buy it yourself. I'm not going to just give it to you. And so that just, you know, gave me the confidence doing all those things. Look, once you sell something door to door, you have a comp, you have the confidence to be an entrepreneur the rest of your life. When you look at that now, young entrepreneurs, wh what value does something like college add to that process when they hear stories like this? It feels so self-starter, but we do have a system, an expensive system that a lot of people spend a lot of time jumping into to try to navigate that world. Is that is that worth the finance and the, the yes. financial uh, uh, investment and or time? Absolutely, 100%, because you learn the language of business, you reduce your dependency on other people, you, you know, hopefully enhance your curiosity to find out about all kinds of new things, you create a network, um, but most importantly, you learn how to learn. That is the greatest skill that you can have in business, because the only certainty is change. And, you know, my dad used to say, you don't live in the world you were born into, and you've got to be able to be adaptive, and, and if you're not... You're not excited about learning as an entrepreneur. It's never going to work. Now, with obviously with the cost, um, you've got to be a lot more selective. I don't think you need to go. Like I went to Indiana University and I went there because I saw a list of the top 10 business schools and I picked the cheapest one. And it was IU. I'd never set sight on the campus. I'd never seen the campus or done that, gone there, visited. Um, I just went. And it was because it was the cheapest. And I think, you you know, I do the same thing again today. And that's what I counsel kids to do. Pick one that you can afford, even if it means going to a junior college the first two years. And, you know, you made, uh, you know, what's interesting to me, Mark, is, okay, I know about Indiana basketball, you know, I mean, it, it really is, uh, it was, and when you were there, who was, who was on the team back when you were a student? This, so I got there um, right after they won the championship and went undefeated. And so there was Kent Benson, Ray Tolbert, um, oh, Turner, I'm trying, Tony Brown. I forget so it was, who else. it was, it was great basketball and it, it was good falling my, on. It was marginal my first year, but then the next couple of years was great, particularly when yeah. Isaiah Thomas showed up. Well, and then they, they've kind of fallen on some hard times and, uh, but you know, they, they still, they still can win those big games, no doubt about it. 
But you go down to Texas, and then you decide you can't listen to Indiana basketball. Right. So you, so tell us what happened. You started this thing. So tell this us was about like it. mid nineties. It was late ninety four, early ninety five, and I used to get together with one of my buddies, and I was retired at that time. I had built a, a software company and sold it, and was just investing in stocks and doing well. And I would get together with one of my buddies, Todd Wagner. And he was like, look, this new Internet thing, there's got to be a way we can use this new Internet thing to listen to Indiana basketball. And he'd been talking to some other folks. And I was like, OK, I, you know, I, I know how to network. I know software. We'll figure it out. So I bought a Packard Bell computer, second bedroom in my house. We effectively started a company called AudioNet and created the streaming industry. We called it Internet Broadcasting back then. We connected with the local radio station, and I would run down with an eight-hour cassette tape player, um, a VHS player, rather, and connect it to their board, take the eight-hour VHS um, tapes back to my house, figure out how to encode them, put them on this website called audionet.com, and then go on all these bulletin boards and AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and say, if you want to listen to radio from Dallas, do go through these 15 different steps. And shockingly enough, people would do anything to be able to listen to their hometown sports, hometown news, hometown radio. And we grew that starting from 1995 to a company that we went public in July of 1998 called Broadcast.com. And we effectively were YouTube before YouTube. Um, we had hundreds of Internet radio stations. Uh, we had, well, actually, we simulcast hundreds of radio stations, a thousand plus Internet radio stations. And, you know, we would do uh, corporate broadcasts, you name it. We do user uploaded content. And then in 2000, we sold the Yahoo. Now, you, you figured out how to put radio on the Internet, essentially inventing the podcast. Do you feel do you feel guilty taking yeah. away so many hours from human beings who now invested in doing podcasts? Well, it wasn't I, just I, podcasting. It was live streaming. I mean. You know, we would have 60,000 people listening to Cubs games in the middle of the afternoon because we were the only way to get a Cubs game if you were in the office in Chicago. Right. And you literally had to, you know, have a dial up modem. You had to have a um, TCP IP client, ISP client, all this junk. Right. So you had to go through a lot of work. But then we went to video streaming and about 10 percent of um, a movie studio, all this stuff you know, um, and really had built a, a real force. We were the largest multimedia site on the internet when um, Yahoo bought us. What you're describing here, it sounds like you're listening to a local concern and local problem that you then extrapolate and find an answer to that becomes a successful yeah. business. I now, mean, there was, yeah, there was no way to listen to, you know, people don't have multimedia, didn't have multimedia devices on their desk. You didn't have a TV, probably didn't have a radio. And if you had a radio, you couldn't get reception. And if you were an Ohio State fan and you were in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, back home visiting your folks during a game, there is no way to listen to the game or watch the game. So we solved that. And so it was really – but where we made our money is prior to us doing this, if Intel or Motorola wanted to have a presentation to all their employees around the world, they used to have to rent satellite time and this than that. We set it up so that we could charge Motorola half a million dollars and it would be cheaper to work with us to broadcast to all their employees. And that's really where we made most of our money. Do you ever worry, Mark, I don't get the sense you do, but all these things that you've been involved, you ever worry about failing? Yeah, Sounds of course. Like, do you? You worry yeah, about failing? It scares the shit out of me. Yeah, no one wants to fail. That's kind of my motivation, though. Well, I mean, have you had failures? Oh, yeah, so many. I mean... I mean, I thought it'd be a great idea to try to sell powdered milk because it was cheaper, even if it didn't taste so good. 
you know, I mean, just, but that's how you learn. Um, I've had, yeah. And I've invested in so many companies now um, and helped start so many. They're not all going to work. We'll be right back. Bocas del Toro, Panama, a secluded seaside hideaway. Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey, man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Tree Fort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. And what about the pharmacy now? Let's because Jordan and I talked about that. How we were so interested in how that yeah. is going to work. And tell us a little bit about that sure. company. So about four years ago, almost four years ago, um, I got contacted by a, a doctor, Doctor Ashmyansky, who is a radiologist and a math scientist, and just you know way smarter than anybody should ever be. And we this is when the farmer bro was jacking up prices, and I was like, look, if he can jack them up, there must be a way we can cut them. And so he was already working in the pharmacy business. And so what we started doing was going through the process of developing relationships with manufacturers of all these different drugs, starting with generic drugs. And it took us four, almost four years to get all the I's dotted and T's crossed. But on January 19th of 22, um, we launched costplusdrugs.com. And with costplusdrugs.com, we, we wanted to be the very first transparent um, source for generic drugs. And so you can go on costplusdrugs.com and put in the drug. And if we carry it, it'll show you our cost. We mark it up 15%. And at, and then that's the price plus $3 for handling through our pharmacy partner, TruePill, and $5 for shipping. And because of that, because we're so transparent, because we don't work through insurance companies, because we have our own pharmacy benefit manager, we're able to sell drugs for a fraction of what other um, pharmacies and other outlets sell them for. And, you know, the whole goal is to be the low cost provider so that as we add drugs and add branded drugs, nobody ever has to make the choice between paying their bills or taking their medication. Now, you have a, a quote that I found interesting saying that you're all for capitalism at its purest, but it requires capitalists acting like human beings first. Yeah. Uh, which is a big ask. I feel in this day and age, it seems it seems hard. I I feel like I I constantly look for more and more examples of of, of empathy. Is this is this an example of of trying to approach a capitalist enterprise uh, from a humanitarian point yeah, of view? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, being a pure hundred percent capitalist like I am, there you know, it's all about what's the reward. I get to pick my reward. And when, when you're just getting started, the reward is typically money. But as you become, you know, wealthier and more financially secure, the rewards change. And so there are some people that just think, you know, it's all about the scoreboard and how much money and how high are you on the Forbes 400. But for me, my marginal dollar isn't going to next marginal dollar is not going to change my life. But I have the resources to, to invest the money for four years um, to build this company, to invest the money to, you know, put the deposits down and 
pass all the regulatory hurdles to be able to, you know, develop relationships. And we're going to change the game. We're already starting to. You're already starting to see companies react to our pricing. And we're only at 100 and a few drugs. But we'll be, you know, past 1,000, hopefully to 2,000 by the end of the year. We're building a manufacturing plant in Dallas so that we'll be able to manufacture most of our drugs. And we're not, you know, there's so many People talk about the pricing of insulin and other things. There's so many artificial inhibitors that are creating all these crazy pricing um, offerings for drugs that we're just eliminating them. We're kicking them out and not going through that process. We might give up something on the sales and profitability side, and we will, but we're going to change the game. What are people saying to you about this, uh, Mark? I mean, are they your competitors, the traditional companies, uh, insurance companies. What, tell us about that, what sure. that road's been like. Well, first in terms of patients, they love it, right? You can go online and just put in cost plus drugs and do a search so on it's Twitter. Cost plus, that's what we do. We just will search for cost plus drugs. Yeah, so people just go, listening can, right. Yeah, so if you want to go and check to see if you're, we offer your drugs, and if we do, I guarantee you we'll save you money. It's costplusdrugs.com. Okay. And you just go to costplusdrugs.com. You put in the drug um, where you do a search to look up the drug and you'll see what our costs are and you'll see exactly what it'll cost you. There's no games played whatsoever. In terms of how other companies are responding, you know, right now we're just a gnat, you know, just uh, we're an annoyance right now. But the manufacturers really like us. There, there's an interesting thing happening with with the drug um, industry right now, you know. Every pharmaceutical company that manufactures drugs has a horrible reputation, but they, they're taking a beating for the wrong reason. You know, we're, we've been able to work with the manufacturers and, you know, once we get all the required licensing and everything, they'll, you know, when contracts done, they'll sell to us and we'll be able to take drugs that because of the insurance industry and the vertical, vertical integration that they have with pharmacy benefit managers and retail pharmacies, all the prices get distorted. We're able to replicate that without the distortions so that we can sell at just cost us 15%. So the point being that the manufacturers love us because we eliminate all the distortions. You know, and the best way to put it, there's this thing called pharmacy benefit managers. Oh, yeah. They're very controversial, as you know. Very much so. And what they do that is bad is, first of all, they're owned by insurance companies, which also own the, the big pharmacy chains. And so they'll go to a manufacturer and say, look, we have a deal with this insurance company. And the only way this insurance company is going to sell your drug at all is if you give us a great price first, which is normal, right? We've got access. But then after that great price, they'll also say, if you want to stay there and keep on selling, you've got to rebate us all this extra money. And so then they'll use that, the, the pharmacy benefit managers have all that extra money. And so they'll then increase the prices even more so that the actual net cost that they achieve from the um, manufacturer is not passed on. It's just, and I didn't explain that perfectly, but it's just so distorted. It's very, it's so complicated. You know, we would, people would turn us off if we were yeah, getting well, into exactly a discussion right. yeah. with pharmacy benefit managers. Is, yeah, but the, if, they, if they were transparent and we could see what they're doing, because they do serve a purpose. The question is, you know, are they pocketing stuff that people don't they know used about? To serve a drive, you know, yeah. They used to serve a purpose. And what happens, they become so vertically integrated. So all this stuff about putting caps on prices, you know, you hear Bernie Sanders talking about this and that. It's all valid because it is so, you know, just so distorted and so convoluted. 
But here's the reality, and we're experiencing this firsthand, and this is why I'm, I'm positive unless something crazy happens, we will change this game. Um, what happens is the manufacturers are happy to sell to almost anybody who's willing to sell their product. But there's never been companies that won't deal with the insurance companies and the legacy pharmacy benefit managers until we came along. Because we're willing, I'm willing to finance it enough to start small so that we don't have to be, you know, $100 million company in two years in order to pay the bills, right? So because we're willing to start small, I have, and because I'm not distorting the prices, we make the manufacturers look good. And so you've got the pharmacy benefit legacy companies over here, just distorting everything. And here's costplusdrugs.com. And they're now starting to say, you guys are for real. And so we're going to keep on selling you more and more and more drugs, brand name drugs, potentially insulin, right? And as long as they sell them to us, we're going to sell them at cost plus 15%. So the only government intervention that I think, and maybe I'm missing something, I've only been in this industry four years, that's all needed is to make sure that the manufacturers will sell to independent PBMs like ourselves, you know, the ones that aren't part of the big manufacturing machine or um, pharma machine. And we will change the game because of that. So when, when Bernie Sanders and both sides right, really start talking about we need regulatory um, changes and we need caps on prices, as long as those manufacturers continue to sell to us, those won't be necessary. There's been a bunch of customers and press on how women have increased access to birth control. Uh, was was closing the, the gendered pharmaceutical gap on your mind when you undertook this? No, mission? it was more just equity. You know, the way we chose our drugs were what drugs were available to us to sell and what was the equity equation? People couldn't get them. Maybe there were shortages. Maybe the pricing was so out of whack, you know, um, that people weren't able to even buy them. And, 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 and so it was first equity rather than gender-driven um, but I guess indirectly, gender support is also equity. But um, that was the first goal. And now it's really just getting as many drugs as we can at the best price we can. And the other thing you'll notice with us is every week so far, we've been able to lower our prices. So there's been two, three, four, five drugs each week where because our costs went down, the price to patients went down. And we'll continue to do that. And that's just unheard of in, in the drug business. You know, um, Mark, you own the basketball team, okay? You're on Shark Tank. You've done movies. You've got HDNet, which I'd like. Actually, you probably don't. I sold that. Actually, I, I I sold that. You sold it, okay? Yeah. Well, you had it. You sold it, yeah. and you what you did with you know so many things. So you're saying there's going to be changes in banking and insurance. Uh, I'd like to hear a, just a little bit about that, but that's not where I really want to go. Uh-huh. I think you're a futurist. I, that's what I think you are. I mean, you're an entrepreneur combined with being a future, futurist. What do you see as the next couple really big things that that are going to come? And and secondly, how how do you get yourself involved in those? Okay, so the three biggest things are personalized medicine, artificial intelligence, and cryptocurrency platforms. Not the tokens themselves, but the platforms. Um, cryptocurrencies. There's so much noise. It, it, it's so hard to tell the signal from the noise. You know, you've got Bitcoin, which is kind of a digital version of gold as a store of value. That's speculative to some. It's an it's a hedge to others. I, I, I just think it's a digital version of gold. But then you've got Ethereum and other platforms 
Solana, um, Polygon, they have these things called smart contracts. And smart contracts allow applications to be written that are standalone, meaning they're not necessarily owned by any company and they're accessible to anybody. And that ability to create smart contracts allows decentralized organizations to be created. So one example is something called DeFi, decentralized finance. And so it's possible for someone to deposit $1,000 into a decentralized finance account that's owned by nobody, right? It's all run by smart contracts and earn interest that's higher than what you would earn in a bank and also borrow against that. Like I did a quick borrow on one of my accounts and it requires um, 100% or 50% collateralization, right? So if you have a thousand, you can borrow up to 500. They tell you what your interest rates are. It's not a payment plan. As long as you are you know, collateralized enough, you, you don't have to pay it back, right? They've got your collateral. And I could borrow you know, $500 in about 90 seconds. And so just having availability to that, the ability to borrow, the ability to earn interest, um, I think that's one application. NFTs are another application. There'll be so many more, you know, textbooks, um, insurance, you know, healthcare. Um, the number of applications is unlimited, just like the internet. So that's one thing. Artificial intelligence is changing the game for business in the world. You know, if you think about some of the hard things, the difficult scenarios we're facing right now, we can look at like Facebook and we can talk about disinformation. And what does Facebook always say in response to disinformation or Twitter or, or Google? They talk about their artificial intelligence and how the artificial intelligence helps them determine what's disinformation, what's real, what are fake accounts. Literally, our democracy is being challenged and the underpinnings of the decisions that are being made about their democracy aren't being made by individuals. They're being made by artificial intelligence. And so, you know, we're not, that's one application that's important. Another application is warfare. You know, how do you determine what's going to happen next? Drones making decisions. That's going to be big. But, you know, where I pay the most attention is when it comes to business. Basically, in business, there are AI haves and AI have nots. If you look at the top 10 American market cap companies on the stock market, all but Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, are the best companies in the world at artificial intelligence. And when you see companies like Google and Facebook and um, Netflix and Amazon, just a Apple, just continue to make more and more money and you wonder how do they make so much more than everybody else? It's because of artificial intelligence, you know? And so that's a big um, advantage that's a big advantage. And we're getting more of a bifurcation of people, companies that are great at AI and companies that are going to be challenged by it. And that's going to be giving bigger companies bigger advantages, but it also plays a national security issue because we're just now um, starting to figure out as a country that our competitive, um, our competition with China in particular, but to a lesser extent, Russia, is driven not by who's got the, the best bombs and bullets, but by who uses AI the best for cybersecurity or for cyber warfare. It is literally the ultimate battle um, globally, and it's one we have to win. If we lose to China in particular, you know, as things go more to robotics and, you know, and decision-making driven by AI, the shit could hit the fan in a lot of ways. And then finally, the third one is precision medicine, which is also an offshoot of AI. 
you know, our bodies are just one big math equation. And each and every day we figure out what each one more variable means and how all those variables interplay. And AI helps us simulate that and calculate that and determine that. And that's why you're starting to see a lot more personalized medicine like cancer therapies um, and the like. And why I personally think that over the next 10 years, we'll start to get vaccines for cancer that little kids will be able to get a vaccine when they're infants and that'll be able to take some of their stem cells and using mRNA determine, you know, what impurities or, or malfunctions there may be in our little baby and be able to address those and be proactive to prevent cancer. So that's a long winded answer, but those are the types of things I, I get excited about and curious about. You, you brought up uh, Facebook and Google and their use of AI and are you worried the Facebook starts as a, a social media company and now they become gatekeepers for information? Uh, the, the role of the entrepreneur goes from kid in a Harvard dorm room uh, having fun to being somebody who's crafting um, <laughs> the way in which we see the news, the way in which we see the world, and, and, and wars are beginning to start based on information that people have that come from these places. Are you worried about that that crown being put upon uh, the the new digital entrepreneur? Um, not the new digital entrepreneur, but Zuckerberg in particular, yeah, scares the fuck out of me, right? Because there is so much power there and it's global power and influence. And, you know, um, we don't need, um, what was the guy, Rosebud, um, oh my God. Citizen Kane. What's that? And Citizen Kane? Yeah, Citizen Kane, who was the, who was the um, media, the, media publisher that they were um that that was written about hearst hearst yeah yeah the hearst empire right it's the equivalent of that right where there's just too much power centralized and the decisions they make as a company to how they implement their ai and the goals that they set for the ai impact the world that's scary that's scary but on the flip side we still there it's almost impossible to find the equilibrium between ai being developed privately and commercially and AI being developed by the government because you need to have both because the applications are different and the goals are different. And so we can't just depend on the private sector to determine our best um, to, to move the ball on AI because AI is just so wide. It's just there's so many applications. Well, then you get to job training, you know, because we, we need all this technology, machine learning, digital marketing, AI, all these things. The problem is we don't we're not educating a whole new group of people to to be able to, to but the good news is you can actually get that stuff online yeah, you can get a certificate yeah. and you can go to work and you don't have to have a four year degree that's probably another big change that's coming down the road is what our higher education system looks like i think there'll be more certifications right you won't have to go for 4 years but you will be able to get a good job if you can become an expert in uh, it just depends uh, where ai goes right yes, we don't know that's yet. right Right. right. So the problem isn't that, you know, we're, we're there's going to be disruption or that the, what a, a good job looks like will change. The problem is we don't have the agility in the educational system to be able to be proactive or reactive because the jobs of five years from now could be completely different. Like I tend to think that liberal arts majors become more valuable because in order for AI to be good at what they do, you've got to have domain expertise. And so we need different people with different domain expertise. You can't have an AI bot that 
you know, does Shakespeare without people who know Shakespeare training it and teaching it, even if it's self-supervised, you have to have those people there. So you need a much wider variety of skills in order to, to contribute. But to your point, Governor, you know, there, there will be certifications, there will be new jobs, there will be disruption. It just never happens on the time frame in exactly the way you want. So getting it right is going to be very like, and having uh, a bridge. You need a bridge for people. Well, you need to agility. be able to move. Yes, you, you need agility, yes. right? You know the idea that um, my daughter is getting ready to go to Vanderbilt next year, and the idea that the major she chooses and the coursework she's supposed to take in 2022 will protect her and prepare her for 2027, the year after she graduates. Hopefully, um, it's just it's wrong. It's impossible. You know, and like I've said to Indiana and other places that have asked me about it, your senior year should be completely open ended and there should always be a revision of the curriculums for every college that is real time that you can't. Even though I know it's disruptive, even though I makes it I know it makes it more difficult for those schools. um, The only way you're going to prepare kids for the reality of all the change that happens and that change is only going to accelerate with AI is if your classes are basically fungible, right? Hey, we offered it in 2024, but it's not applicable in 2026, so it's gone. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. I'm a father of a, a one and a half year old, and we're Congrats. starting to, thank you very much. We're starting to to contemplate what his future looks like as far as schooling goes. And uh, and I, I, think, I think you bring up an interesting point right now about like flexibility. First off, you bring up a lovely point in that liberal arts majors are the soul of this country. And I'm going to <laughs> I did clip say that. that. I, I think that's what I heard. more value than people think. No, I think I heard soul of the country. I, it's, if you didn't say it, we'll find it. Hey, if you're, if you're you talking you about it. shoes, okay, we can have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> or swing dancing. Or swing dancing. I think I just get excited. It's the first time I've heard them given any kind of value in, in quite some time. So it was, AI, uh, AI is useless unless it's trained properly, unless things are labeled properly. And so kind of, you know, now we're, we're in a period where an Amazon warehouse job is plentiful and it pays okay, but it's kind of mind-numbing. And we'll go through a period where the mind-numbing but paying well jobs are labeling things for artificial intelligence and using domain knowledge um, so that, you know, you've got to be able to say, okay, this is a mouse, you know, and this holds water, but, you know, cupping my hands also holds water. Somebody's got to be able to identify more advanced versions of that. I'm curious about um, controversy. You've talked about... uh, there was discussion around the distribution of the 9-11 conspiracy film, Loose Change. Uh-huh. And you had talked about um, liking controversial subjects uh, and being agnostic as to which side the controversy comes from. How does controversy play into uh, uh, entrepreneurial thinking? And has that evolved and or shifted as as it seems like people are adding causes and point of views to the, the companies yeah, that, that they support? That's an interesting question because – you know, back then when I looked at it, it was for HDNet and it was a different media age then. You know, that was back when in 2007 was TV still had some weight to it or much more, much more weight than it does now. And, you know, Twitter was nascent and there really wasn't all the other social media. And so what controversy means to then versus what it means today are night and day different. Um you know, there really is no more controversy anymore because there's two sides, three sides, four sides, five sides, 
to everything. It's just a question of what you like and what you don't like individually and the position you take. I think the underpinning of why it's really changed is we've all become social media performance artists. Every single one of us, we all have a brand. We all have a character that we play that sometimes it's like us in real life. Sometimes it's not. And we get um, appropriately happy or mad depending on what it is. And that's our own personal versions of controversy. Um, in terms of what's controversial on scale, you know, I think in order there for there to be controversy, there has to be some level of gatekeepers and the gatekeep, you know, you, you oppose whatever the gatekeepers decide. And I, I, I just don't think we have that anymore. So when, you know, maybe if you gave me an example, but you know, me personally, I don't, I don't look at things. Oh, that's controversial. I look at it and say, you know, I agree or disagree, but what I do look for as an entrepreneur, if I think there's a lot of people who are taking a position just because that's the position to take, then that's an industry ripe for disruption, just like politics is right now. Politics is ripe for disruption because our approach, you know, our two-party approach is just back-assed halfwards and it's counterproductive. It's just, you know, it's expensive to change and, and it's going to be a multi-decade changing process. You know, Mark, on the um, there's so many things to talk to you about, and people are going to be listening saying, you knuckleheads, why didn't you ask them about this or that? <laughs> but I'd like to ask you a little bit about about money and sports. Sure. So you see baseball, which has become basically a regional sport. I mean, we don't know who the players are anymore. They're, they're changing all the time. Is this mean that we could be ending, we could enter an era where people outside of the NFL might begin to lose great interest in sports? No. no? no. Why not? No, I'll tell you why exactly why. So you and I, Governor, grew up in an age where we stayed home Saturday afternoon to watch the Pirates. We listened to Bob Prince every night yeah, that it was on, did. right? And yeah. if we didn't listen to Bob Prince, we waited to get the Pittsburgh Post Gazette in the morning to, to see what the score of the game was because, you know, we're young enough we couldn't stay up late. Um, that's all changed. And what's changed in particular is social media. Like my 12-year-old son loves basketball. But we have a big game tonight. He probably doesn't know we have a big game tonight because he loves Luka Doncic. He right. loves Steph Curry. He loves LeBron. He loves Giannis. And I love all, them all too. I'm right, right there. I'm right there right. with you. And and so and they're all brands. And even kids that are in high school and college now, because they know how to use social media, they're huge brands as well. And so particularly now with the name, image, and likeness going on for college and to a certain extent high school, you've got those kids, if they have big enough brands on social media, making tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands or more. And they're making business decisions on whether they go to Ohio State or IU based off of how much money they might make. And so the point of that is kids in particular are connecting to NBA players in particular on social media more than they ever have before. And the NBA is actually more popular with kids 24 and, and under than the NFL is. And the, our athletes have built their brands so big that they make more money off the court. The biggest athletes do. They have social influence in a big way because their brands and social media followings are so big and that benefits the NBA. And so our problem isn't that there's not interest. Our problem is how do you balance the people who like to consume full games like we did with the kids who like to um, consume it in 30 second bites? 
Like my son, the way he'll watch our game tonight, there's a guy on TikTok who will take videos based off of what he bet on and start screaming and cursing depending on what happened relative to his bets. And my son thinks that's hysterical. So he'll see all the, you know, all the plays and stuff on TikTok that way because that's how he consumes it. And he'll know everything that I know about the game when it's all said and done. And so how kids in particular consume the game is different. Um, and then we have the issue of balancing, you know, traditional linear television versus streaming and the cost and all that. So that that's a challenge we have to work through. But in terms of being in good hands, I think we're in the best shape. I think baseball has the most difficult road. But I will say this, and I had this conversation with our broadcast partner, my meeting just before this. Baseball is the perfect sport to TikTok a size. And what I mean by that is if I'm playing fantasy sports, if I'm playing fantasy baseball, there's no reason why you couldn't create a version of quote unquote broadcast or an app where all the players that I've picked for my fantasy team, I only see their plate appearances or when they're in the mound, when they're pitching. And that just comes to me continuously for what's happening for that night. Um, The same with football, you know, think of it as red zone. If you created a red zone for baseball, but you only saw the the plate appearances or the pitches or the the plays involving the the players that you care about. It would be huge. Now, you and I, as a baseball traditionalist at some level, or at least I used to be, not so much anymore, right, um, might not like it, but we can just watch the traditional broadcasts. But just like when we were kids, you know, my dad would yell at me, turn that shit off when I play, you know, my Doors or Alice Cooper <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, just new generations come in different ways. You might have just heard my little son, Wit. Yeah. He wanted to, to say hi. He's a big basketball fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he had a question for you. Hoop. Yeah, very he's, cool. He's got a little hoop. He wants to know, is there anything you can do to get James Harden to come back to the Brooklyn Nets? No, I don't see that uh, happening. <laughs> as an owner... You're not just looking at numbers with these guys anymore because they are brands and because they are a business unto themselves. How much do you weigh that uh, as you are putting together a team, as you are looking at their their social media followings or the potentials they have or even their their fashion yeah. sense and style? How much is that now? Indirectly a little bit, right? Two players being equal, you'll take the one that's got the bigger following because that's revenue. But that doesn't happen all that often. But where social media comes in and their brand comes in, is how much it tells you about them because you can't be successful as a team unless you have good chemistry. You know, you've got to have guys that fit together that want to play together, that know their roles and looking at social media, someone's social media can tell you quite a bit about them. What was it like that when you won that championship? You mean huh? that guy I back mean, there, wait, where is it? See that, that gold thing? It's a podcast. So can you describe how you feel holding <laughs> that trophy there, Mark? <laughs> This is my friend, Larry, six Which games. Comes, yeah, six, six games, games against yeah. Miami in 2011. Um, I can't believe how long it's been. You know, more than anything else, more than a joy or a celebration, it was stress release. You know, there's just all the stress that builds up across a playoff run because in 2006, we went to the finals and lost. And, I, and we were favored to win and we should have won. Um, and so 2011, particularly playing against LeBron in the first super team, it was just like, okay, you know, anybody can come back at any time and you can't take it for granted. And, and when it got down to the final 30 seconds, then we were up 10 and I realized, okay, this is it. I just let out the world's biggest scream because it was the ultimate stress release. It's literally a terrifying process along the way. 
do you just keep that in your office? And if there's ever a Zoom that go, that you need to pull a status move, you just yeah, grab the trophy. Flex, right. I'm just like, wait, did I drop something? <laughs> <laughs> now, what about this town you bought? Oh, Mustang? I understand. Well, I mean, what you go and buy a, a town? I mean, that was why? my favorite. That was the favorite to a friend. Um, a guy that I played pickup with for years got cancer. And really his biggest asset was Mustang, Texas. And he hoped that would be the thing that took care of his family and he couldn't sell it. You know, he, he was stuck. And I mean, his family was stuck. And so um, a mutual friend of ours kind of said, you know, would you help him out? And I did. And so that's why I bought it. And plus, I'm not going to lie, you know, when they brought it to me and it was like, okay, there's only one town in Texas that can be privately owned and that's Mustang, Texas. And this is your chance to buy it. I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, I'm not going to lie. What's your per, what kind of personal faith do you have, Mark? Do you have any at all? Tell me how how you grew up. Oh yeah, I mean I'm Jewish. Um, I'm not going to say I'm really religious. I'm not, um, but I respect you know and appreciate the history of the Jewish people and just where my parents and grandparents came from. I mean, they came over on the boat, and you know, in terms of current events, you know, my my grandmother um, was from Malin um, in what's now Ukraine. And, you know, I just recently got into genealogy and one of my hopes was to go back there and visit, you know, and my other um, grandparent on my my dad's side, um, my grandfather was born in Dnipro. So when you see the maps up there that they're putting up there and you see DNIPRO, um, it used to be called Dnipro Prost when he was there. And I remember them talk, talking to me about it. And, and so, you know, when you talk about faith, you know, my my grandparents were uber religious, super religious, and my dad just kind of revolted against that and said, "Okay, we're Jewish, but we're we're not going to, you know, you know, we're not going to be ultra religious." Um, but you know, in terms of what I believe, I believe you just do the right thing, and if you're good to people, it all works out. Do you, you've 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 floated the idea of running for for higher office uh, a handful of times. Is that still a, no. is that still a flex that's in your back pocket? No, no, not at all. Just because of my family, I don't know how the governor went through it. You know, I, I just cannot put my family through that at all. You know, I, yeah, there's just no chance. Well, you know, you do it. You do it because you see something you you feel really strongly about. You know, you you think you're the the way that I always did it is somebody else better that can do it better than I could. And my conclusion was no. So I, I went out and did it. And, um, you know, I guess over time, uh, uh, Jordan and Mark, it's like, I guess in some respects, like being an NBA player, you just get, you get your, you get bumped, you get hit, you get bad calls, but over time you just get used to it and you just say, okay, that's just part of the game. And, uh, but you got to be careful. You just don't want to do anything really stupid to bring it on. But um, generally, I found it to be an exhilarating and, and great experience to be yeah, there for and, as long and, as I was. And you were great at it, right? You did a great job. And obviously, as governor, you did phenomenal things. It's just I don't know that I had the temperament not to screw it up, you know. And as an entrepreneur, I think I can have more of an impact. Like, you know, if we can – you know, not fixed drug pricing, but dramatically yeah, changed drug deal. pricing. Big deal. You know? That's and a I, big deal. Yeah. And I think, you know, once we get through this, I can extend it into hospitals because we've done a lot of research on, you know, where hospitals, you talk about lack of transparency, even hospitals don't know what their costs are. I tried to fund a study that asked hospitals what accounting systems that they used and how they determined their costs. Nobody, not a single CFO or CEO would respond 
to the people doing the study. They just didn't even want to know what their own costs are because the more transparent they are, the harder it is for them to, to, to just keep on raising their revenues. And there's just this unholy alignment between insurance companies, the payers, and hospitals, the providers, where they both benefit from prices going up and nobody, nobody in this business benefits from costs and prices going down. And so, you know, hopefully that, that's next on my path for disruption. Well, to learn more about the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company and how Cost Plus Drugs works, go to costplusdrugs.com. Yes, Mark, sir. thank you for, uh, for giving us your time. Jordan, Mr. Governor, I appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. The questions were great. I really enjoyed it. Show us that trophy one more time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you want, you don't want to see my swing moves? <laughs> if you can do it with the trophy, oh, maybe that'll oh, finally please. get the governor on board. Oh, you, you, know, you know how you know, drop them and then you oh. twirl. And, yep. it's, it's a beautiful art form, and governor. You're going to get on board. The easiest dance with your daughters, my daughters are now 15 and 18 at the daddy-daughter dance, is a swing dancing. You know, you just pull them up, spin them around, spin them, da-da-da-da-da. Nothing better, governor. I got governor, you. Get on board. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.